Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to see you all. Braving the elements, good on you. I have a few announcements today. Um, the morning tea will be a little different. Since COVID, we, we've kind of been, I guess, delivering the food and drink to people. Now, um, just to ease the burden on the volunteers, just if you want tea or coffee, go get it. Feel free to come back in the sanctuary, that's fine. Um, but that's the format, so if you're like, where is my tea? Well, just feel free to go up and grab it. It's all for you, so praise the Lord that he's blessed us with some uh, great bakers and uh, coffee makers and all that, so praise him. He is glorious, and it's like we can sing our very best, and is it worthy of God? Like, he, he, he receives it all with its flaws, like, like I'm saying the wrong words during the song, and it's like, God is so good. He receives that gladly. Um, so, yeah, our best efforts, they may be not as great or as, as we'd like them to be, but he receives them by his grace. Uh, okay, uh, we are having communion today, so if you're a follower of Jesus, you're all invited and welcome to come forward at the end of the service. I'll just direct that time where we will come forward, receive the cup and the, the bread, and then we will partake together. Um, and also prayer afterwards up front, if you'd like to pray, that's an opportunity for you as well. All right, so we will be in Genesis 13, and let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are glorious and good and gracious and merciful, and everything that we need is found in you. Thank you for providing beyond our imagination and giving us a life here on earth, for providing a family in Christ that we're part of, for giving us a Savior, Jesus Christ, and for making us one in him. And thank you for the eternal hope that we have in heaven that will not fade or pass away, reserved for us. And thank you for the price that Jesus paid, that he is Lord of all, and he humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, took the form of the servant, and died on the cross so that we could be redeemed, so we could be forgiven, so our sins could be atoned for. Lord, we worship you, and we thank you for bringing us together, for giving us your word, for providing hope beyond this world in Jesus. So we come to you rejoicing, Lord, and ask to be filled with your spirit, that we might understand what you're saying to each one, and that we take it to heart and rejoice to praise and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we can all appreciate that strife is part of life on earth. Like there's conflicts that happen. Just the presence of another person is enough to disturb the tranquility of nature. Um, you're in a beautiful spot and there's some people shouting across the, the lake and you're like, what is that? Like this, this should be a, a serene place. But no, we are walking along, mind your own business and a magpie just dive bombs us. And it's like, even nature is getting in on this. And the quiet of the house, there's people sleeping and suddenly there's a, a scream or a yell because there's an unexpected spider or roach that has appeared and it's like you put people in close proximity with each other for a prolonged period of time and differences cause friction, right? It's like 
water wears away stone, and you put people together, and you can have enemies with drawn battle lines over things. And the Bible's full of examples of strife. We've all experienced it, but you have the disciples of Jesus, who Jesus is going to the cross, and they're debating who is the greatest. And they're having this, this argument about who's the greatest among them without thinking about Jesus at all. In last week's passage, God had made uh, promises to Abram, promises to bless him and that he would be a blessing. And he finally went to Canaan, the land that God promised to give him. And God said, this is the land. This is the land that I'm giving you. And then there was a famine and he went to Egypt. And out of fear for his safety, he concocted this plan with his wife, Sarai, to say, if they inquire about our relationship, you'll just say you're my sister. She was his half-sister, but she, more importantly, was his wife. But he was hoping not to die because of her, because that would make him a target. And the ruse came to light, and Abram was rebuked by Pharaoh. And he was sent away with riches, and Pharaoh commanded that no harm come to him. More than being enriched with goods, Abram learned this, this lesson that God is faithful to protect and to provide that God is faithful to his promise. Even when we are faithless, when we are forgetful of what God has said, he remains true. Even when all seems well, our needs are met and we're living what we think is the good life, we can have strife in our own hearts. It's like we don't need another person on the planet to be troubled because we're troubled in ourselves. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Genesis 13, starting in verse 1, let's read. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord." Abram went out of Egypt with his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot. It says he was very rich in livestock, silver and gold. And because it says very rich, it seems that it's uh, wealthy in comparison to those around him. And he was wealthy in silver and gold. And it's interesting. A person can be comparatively rich to other people on the planet, but uh, not consider themselves rich. I was reading an article. It said the average Australian would need to earn a salary of 326900 per year to feel rich. Hmm. But one in four Aussies wouldn't consider themselves rich until they raked in a whopping $500,000. So if you're getting 500000 a year, you fe- you're starting to feel a bit rich. right? You're just like, I'm feeling it. Now, we're not told whether Abram felt rich or not. God says it as a matter of fact. He was very rich. Uh, and there's no, it's not a sin to be wealthy. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And those who pursue money or wealth, they will pierce themselves through with many sorrows and perhaps even err from the faith. Psalm 62.10 says, Do not trust in oppression nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Something about money is our affections can be tangled up with it, with what it affords us to do, the security or the, the false security that it can give us. Like we are set for life, right? People say that because they, they feel like 
I know how much I'm spending. I know how much I have or how much is rolling in. And because of that, I am set for life. But what kind of life are you talking about? You're talking about Christ, who is our life? Does that have anything to do with money at all? No, it's in Christ who is good, where we have true life. The, the money we can value can grow wings and fly away, but the true riches of the kingdom, those will endure. Abram goes from Egypt back to where he had previously built an altar at the first to the Lord between Bethel and Ai. It's like he went back to the beginning. He went back to where he had called on the name of the Lord, and it was a return to first steps of faith where he had come into the land, God had spoken to him, and in response, Abram called out to God. And he's now walking in light of the goodness of God and the promises that he'd made. And he's seeking God like he did at the beginning. And by faith in God, Abram did what um, Christ told the church to do in Revelation 2.5, where he said, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Going back to a physical location is not as important as repentance and returning to the Lord to seek him in our hearts, to go back when we have erred to the Lord. Just go and seek him again. Like he didn't have to go back there, but it was significant that he did because he was seeking God who revealed himself to him. And it's not going back as if you never left. It's a humble return to God, knowing we have strayed, knowing we have erred in our hearts. We've strayed from the faith, even as the prodigal left his father's house with his dad's money. He came back not as an entitled son, but as an unworthy servant, right? He was contrite. He realized that he had done wrong. In the parable that Jesus told, the son said, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He recognized his sin in demanding what was his was against God, but also he had sinned against his dad. He didn't imagine it was right for him to just waltz right back in and come back like to the job that he had had before that he had treated with contempt the privileges that were afforded him as the son of the master, but instead he came back as a servant, and because his father loved him, what did he do? He didn't say, okay, fine, you can go sleep out back with the dogs. No, he, he hugged him. He put a robe on him. He put a ring on his finger. He put shoes on his feet. He said, kill the fatted calf. We are feasting because my son who was dead is now alive. He was lost, now he's found. He rejoiced in that in his return. God's love for lost sinners is greater than the love of any man or woman for their son. That's how great God's love is. And if Abram, the father of faith, strayed from the path of faith from a season, then it's possible that we can as well. And the call really isn't so much as, have you ever strayed from God, but have you returned in humility? submission to God at the first. Have you sought him? Have you sought the Lord? Have you called on his name? Maybe you've yet to call upon God. Well, today is the day. Trust in Christ. And maybe you've been born again by Christ, but you've, in facing troubling circumstances, it's like that famine that it didn't drive Abram to go to Egypt. He didn't have to go to Egypt, 
but he doubted God's provision. And so he did what seemed best to him for his family at the time. And he was leaning on his own understanding. He was trusting in himself and Egypt rather than the Lord. So don't just go back in mind, in your mind, like how was it when I used to follow Jesus or when I first followed Jesus and try to just go back and revisit those memories. No, seek God like you did at the beginning. Obey him as you did at the beginning. Choose to surrender your life and your future to him like you did at the beginning. When there was a sense of desperation in coming to him, that your sins would be forgiven, that you could go to heaven, that you could know him and follow him forever and worship him. We don't read of Abram asking for anything at this time. He's calling on the name of the Lord. Verse 5, Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. Lot accompanied Abram. He had a possession of flocks, herds, and tents. And in, the, in a few chapters, we'll read that Abram had over 300 servants. That's a lot of tents. Like a big tent, it's like a five-person five tent. It's a pretty significant tent. And there's hundreds of people just Abram's people. And then you have Lot's servants and you have all their flocks and herds and the land couldn't support the demands of the animals for grazing and water. It says the Canaanites and Perizzites dwelt in land. That meant that Abram and Lot were getting the leftovers. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, they were already there. They already had the prime areas and so they were looking for what was left over and they weren't having enough in this location. It's like Lot's Lot's herdsmen are looking out for Lot's animals. Abram's, they're looking out for Abram's animals and they are butting heads over like whose turn is it to go to the water hole today? Their allegiance to their master and the health of their flocks, it was their own priority. So their differences of loyalty, it led to division. The cliche speaks of jockeying for position and I don't think you need to be totally uh, knowing the intricacies of horse racing to understand that the rider on the horse wants their horse to win. And they're going to try to put their horse in the best position to finish well. It's the same thing with distant runners on a track. It's easy when you have to stay in your own lane, but it's when those distance runners come out of the lanes and they're right hugging that inside edge and they're making that turn where they're kind of, there's elbows and knees and people kicking each other and it may be incidental it may be on purpose but they have one goal in mind and that's to win so they're trying to get in the best position i've seen drivers after a race like in nascar or formula one you know get out of their cars and have a punch-up because they didn't like what the other person did to them on the course and these are all professionals like this is what they get paid to do is to race and they are emotionally stirred up by somebody disrespecting them or someone bumping them or cutting them off and have you ever had that little rage just what come to you come to you as you're driving strife it's there the reality was the land could not support them Given the circumstances, something had to be done. Verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. 
If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Abram was Lot's elder, the one to whom God had made these great promises. He approaches Lot with humility and grace. He doesn't threaten Lot. He doesn't act like, you know, get your guys in line. You know, I'm the boss type thing. He doesn't drive him away. Like, God made this promise to me, and you are really, I should have gotten rid of you a long time ago. Like, I mean, there's none of that. He is pleading with him. He is begging with him as an equal, showing respect. Like, this is not working. Please separate from me, and you get first choice of anything. Anywhere to go, I'll just go the other direction. And he says, I don't want there to be strife between me and you because we are brethren. That identity as brethren was really important to foster humility and grace. And he wanted more than just civil cohabitation. He wanted unity and love and respect. That's what Abraham desired. The kings of old, they'd say, uh, I will offer you up to half of my kingdom. And it's the king that gets to decide what half it is, right? He won't actually give a half, but it's just a statement to say like, I'm being magnanimous. I will give you what you want, anything you ask. But the king is still the king. Now, Abram, he doesn't even take that. He says, you can have all of the land. You choose for yourself what you want. Please separate. It was Abram's choice, yet it required Lot's willing cooperation to restore that unity and peace without strife. Now, in our personal experience, it's very unlikely that we've experienced strife over grazing or watering of our herds, right? I don't think there's many shepherds in here, cattle, men and, or women. But we have experienced some strife, probably in the workplace or in our households, like when whose turn it is to do that chore or getting up on time or accusations of hogging the bathroom like you're always in there when i need like i need to go and and there can be strife because it's two people wanting to be in the same place but you can only be one person in that place at a time and there can be strife over what you do strife over what you don't do strife over what you believe or what you think and you can have arguments like th this is not news to any of you we, we understand this. We've experienced it. And in the church, though we be brethren, historically there's been strife over countless issues, conflicts of personality, ministry philosophy. People have not always demonstrated the humility and love and grace that Abram did towards Lot. Abram did not want to be rid of him, but to stay united as brothers, they needed to separate. The land couldn't support them. That was the reality. And the church, the body of Christ, it's composed of different denominations and groups for a similar reason. Logistics do not allow us to all go to the same building or the same place. Um, one pastor, one ministry cannot support everyone. Like there is, and there's a lot of different views. There's a lot of different people. And only New Jerusalem is going to accommodate everyone all at once. Okay, that's when it will be like really awesome, where the whole body of Christ will be in one place at one time. Now, it may be that the Lord would lead us to separate uh, for a season, as Paul did from Barnabas. We read in Acts 15 that they had this strong contention about bringing John Mark with them. 
Paul didn't want him to come along because he had left them during the middle of a previous trip. But Barnabas is like, he's got to come. And they just said, all right, you know what? You go and you take John Mark with you. I'm going to go over here. So they went in different directions. This show, and, and God forbid that we would use that passage to justify sharp contentions. Like, well, they had a contention. And so I can be contentious. No. But to know apostles are not immune to this right? Division and strife can occur within people everywhere. Even people who fear the Lord. And they're not cutting, like Abram and Lot, we're not cutting each other off. Instead of being roommates, they were going to be neighbors. Okay, you go over there, I'll go over here. We want to be peaceful towards each other. Separation can promote the health and well-being, I think, of a baby being born. It's good for both the baby and the mother that the baby is born. If the baby was not born, then you would, you would have like very serious health problems. It would be impossible to have life. Uh, and it's good when a young person grows up into an adult and they leave the family home to have a family of their own. Like that's good. Abram puts in practice the exhortation of Philippians 2.4 that says, let each of you look out not for, only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Abram desired that his flocks would be well watered. He was looking after his servants too, but he realized that Lot had that same responsibility before the Lord. And so he gave him first choice by faith in God, knowing that God would be faithful to provide for him. And that's really important. He didn't make this decision before going to Egypt. It was after going to Egypt, he realized, you know, God's going to provide for me. I'll offer Lot anything he wants. He w- he's like, I'll be content with the leftovers of Lot's leftovers because God is my God. He is the Lord. Abram followed Romans 12, 17, and 18. Long before it was penned, it says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Abram didn't feel entitled to the best or the first, nor due to his age, like I've got the wisdom. He pleaded with Lot. He gave Lot an offer he could refuse, but he would be a fool to do so. And if such care and concern was used, demonstrated by Abram to resolve strife in a family, how much more should we walk in love towards our brethren in Christ? That act of love, it cares about other people. It actively seeks their good. It seeks to live peaceably in unity because we are identifying with Christ. We are brethren in him. We are one in him. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that means forgiving, keeping no records of wrongs, being easily entreated. And when offenses arise, to resolve them with the aim of restoration. So important. I was thinking, again, in how to relate this this strife to our circumstances. The conflict of Paul and Barnabas, that was resolved face-to-face. Abram and Lot also addressed face-to-face. A lot of our strife can occur online. And I encourage you in your online interactions to consider that principle of love that we see with Aquila and Priscilla. They extended grace to Apollos 
in Acts 18. Now, the, Apollos is described as an eloquent man, that he was mighty in the scriptures, that he taught diligently the things of God, and he preached, in the, in, preached boldly in the synagogue the baptism of John. The problem was it was after Jesus had come, after his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. So he, he was focusing on the shadow rather than the substance. It would be like holding up the wedding invitation when the groom is the one who, desi- who should be uh, paid attention to, spoken to, because he's alive and he's there, right? He's in their midst. And so eight, Acts 18, 26, it says, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. So if we believe even a believer is in the wrong, let's not quarrel with them before all these other listeners. Let's not troll them, but invite them to a private conversation to offer instruction. At one time, Aquila and Priscilla were ignorant as well, and they pulled them aside to explain it more accurately. It wasn't like this is the right way. They, they reasoned with him. And it's such a grief to my soul when I see Christians sparring and quarreling with each other publicly while the world looks on with scorn or disdain. So let's be those who who take these matters privately, seeking peace and restoration, not to create discord by our sledging or ungrace. So I just wanted to encourage you toward that end. Genesis 13.10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord." Lot heeded the request of his uncle Abram and he looked at the land, at all the land that lay before him. And what had they been striving over? Well, grazing, water. And there's this well-watered plain. Like, wow. And it's so green. It's so lush and beautiful. It was like the Garden of Eden in appearance. I mean, it was like a paradise in the middle of the desert. And he looks upon that greener pasture of the Jordan plain And it says he chose it all for himself. Now, the passage implies that what we see can be deceiving and that it wasn't always going to be that green pasture that looked so beautiful and vibrant and lush. Um, Remember the Garden of Eden? It used to have all the fruit trees in it and it was a place that was lovely. And after the flood, where was it? It was gone. And after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, well, this area would be destroyed as well. But it looked so good at the time. It looked like this would supply his needs now and for the future. Like, oh, there's room to grow here. But he took for himself, heading towards Sodom with, he's a righteous man going towards a place that was full of wicked people. We see Lot lifting his eyes, looking to the well-watered plain. We don't read of him looking to the Lord for guidance in making that decision. 
we can do the same thing. We can choose what we think is best for ourselves or what looks the best option rather than God who provides all good things. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 106, starting in verse 9. This is a passage that describes what happened after God delivered the Hebrews from slavery and death in Egypt. So, this, this awesome miracle, God did, did many miracles, a series of miracles that delivered his people in Egypt. And this is what happened. Psalm 106, verse 9. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. See the awesome things God did. If you just scan it, it's like he rebuked the sea. He led his people. He saved them. He redeemed them. Like God did everything for his people to save them. He miraculously delivered them. You would say, if something like that happened to me, it would profoundly affect every decision I make from now on because, man, God has been good. And they believed him. It said they believed his word. And then verse 13 happens where it says, they soon forgot his works. Like days later, three days, they're like, where's the water? After God had just destroyed all their enemies, they forgot <laughs> just within moments. They're complaining. They're grumbling against God. They're dissatisfied with the leadership. They're weeping and they're mourning. There's no meat. I wish we could go back to Egypt and eat onions and leeks when we could just eat as much as we wanted. Yeah, we were slaves, but man, the food was better. And God said, okay, I'll give you meat. You can have as much as you want. You'll eat until it comes out of your nostrils. And that is a revolting picture. And yet, even with bellies full of what they desired, it said he sent leanness into their souls. So they were full. Their bellies were full, but their souls were empty. They were empty without God, without faith in God. Walking in wisdom, it boils down to a question of faith in God. Will we choose for ourselves or will we choose God knowing that he will lead us? He will save us. He will redeem us. Shouldn't we seek him? Shouldn't we wait for his counsel? Shouldn't we remember his works, what he has done? We can all identify with Lot. He's looking to have his needs met presently and for the future. It's possible he'd forgotten that God provided everything up till that point, even when there was strife between Abram and his herdsmen, his his. Animals were still fed. They were still watered. It was difficult, but it was okay. And when we think about our needs, right? If I said, like, what do you need for life? I'd say, well, we need oxygen and water and food and shelter and sleep. And isn't it God who gives us all these things by his grace? When it comes to life and living wisely, we need God. He created us. He's supplied every need until now. Jesus taught that God knows what we need even before we ask him or tell him or inform him of what's going on. 
And sometimes we have not because we ask not. And sometimes God says no. And God can use our lack of an apparent need to reveal our greatest need to believe him and to trust him. Like, isn't God good to withhold a need so that we will see our greater need of him because he's the only one that can supply our needs. So the wisdom of God, right? It's amazing. We need to believe him, remember his promise and rejoice in his provision. Genesis 13, verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Years had passed. Many kilometers had been traveled since God revealed himself to Abram in Haran. In Ur, he moved to Haran. He went, down, he went to Canaan. Then he went to Egypt. Now he's back in Canaan. He's calling on the Lord. Now he's in a position where Lot has separated from him. He's in that place of obedience that he was supposed to have been at earlier, where God said, separate from your people, from your family, and go to the land that I will show you. Those conditions have now been met, and God reaffirms the promise that he made all that time ago. Lift up your eyes and look everything that you can see, even that well-watered plain, even where the Canaanites and the Perizzites are, I give all that to you. Look in every direction. This is all yours. Not I will give it to you, but I give it to you. And I give it not just to you, but to your descendants. And your descendants forever. This is a man who doesn't even have a child. <laughs> Pretty remarkable, right? He's making these everlasting promises to Abram when he all he has is God to rely on. He can't look and say, oh yeah, he's going to inherit this someday. Or she is going to inherit all this land. Doesn't have a child. Lot lifted his eyes. He chose the well-watered plain. I wonder if Abram had that twinge of regret. Where he's like, oh, I, I thought he'd kind of turn that down. And I'm like, what about me? Have you ever had one of those what about me moments that we can have as people? Where you're like, okay, I've served, I've helped, I've done all this, I've given, and what about me? God speaks. God says, lift up your eyes, look every direction. This is all yours. I give it to you. And he would cause his descendants to be as the dust of the earth, beyond reckoning. And don't believe that Abram would have been content in this land or numerous descendants, unless he was first content in God alone. Because he found his contentment in God, because he trusted in God, this was all just bonus. It wasn't like, I feel comfortable now because all this land's been given to me. No, his comfort was in God. His satisfaction was in God. And through God, this was what he received. Jesus warned in Luke 12, 15, he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now this flies completely in the face of most advertisements that you will see 
or, th- or the sentiment that you will hear on the earth, that your, the quality of your life very much depends upon the things that you possess, right? Like clean water. Well, of course we need that. But isn't God the source of not only clean water, but living water? Covetousness has this way of worming its way into our lives, uh, regardless of how much you have. And when our eyes move from God to what we do not have or to what other people's have that we wish we had, we are tempted to covet. And people who talk about having the good life or seeking the good life, it usually does not include God in that picture. When people talk about the good life, I would say in in my own words, it's like, I have my needs and desires met with plenty left over. I feel satisfied. I have a sense of accomplishment and security. Um, I enjoy relaxation without much responsibility. But by faith in Jesus, he is our life. He is good. It's only by faith in him that we can experience the good life because it doesn't depend on what we have or where we live. and, And this isn't mental gymnastics. It's not like positive thinking. This is the reality. This is a spiritual reality for those who are in Christ. Turn to Colossians chapter three, starting in verse one. As usual, we do not give Christ enough credit. And it's good for us to be reminded of what he's accomplished. Like he's put death under his feet. Like he, and he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Like everything, it's in him. Colossians three, verse one. If then you were raised with Christ, Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ, who is our life. He is our life. He doesn't just give life. He is our life. It's in him. God made this promise to Abram and his descendants. He's made a promise to us as well. The reality was all the land was Abram's. Even then he didn't have a title deed. He didn't have uh, boundary markers. Like, all right, it's from that river to the sea. And this is my area. Like he, he didn't have that. But in God, it was his. It had been given to him. And there were other people living on it, but it was still his. When Jesus died on the cross, those who place their faith in him, they have died to sin. They've been raised to new life. They've been born again. The spiritual reality is we are now seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Like our bodies are here, but we spiritually are there. And that's where who are we? That's whom we are to seek. Christ. And one day he will come and we will be glorified with him forever. So praise him for that reality. Even though we're living here on earth, he is our life and he is good. God told Abram, arise, walk in the land through its length and its width for I give it to you. And this is so awesome. He's like, you've seen it, now walk in it. Now experience it, explore it. God said, I give it to you and he's to go anywhere he desired. Go, go, go through the land, walk throughout the whole thing. And he's not just to look at it from a distance. Like, you know, as a kid, you're counting your change and you're sorting it and piling it up and going, wow, look at that. 
nice stacks. How many is there? Start counting them and feeling very pleased with what you've accumulated. And we could do the same thing, except we're not looking at little stacks of loose change, thinking about our holdings in this company or in that, and, or our, the, the share market that we have, and uh, what, whatever the future is holding, and, and the, how things are trending, and feeling very good about the, the, the way things are going, or feeling very bad about the way things are going. But he's like, don't just look at it. Enter into it. Receive it. Explore it. Enjoy it. It's like if, if someone gifts you a new car and you have a license, it would be a very strange thing for you to just toss those keys in a drawer and change the channel on the TV. It's like, don't you want to go for a spin? Don't you want to go somewhere in the car? That's what it's for. It's not just to sit in the garage. It's not just to sink money in repairing it or, or tricking it out, but actually to use it. Right? That's what the car's purpose is. Now, there may be occasions where people have collections of cars and that's what they do. But primarily, the purpose of a vehicle is to transport your body from one place to another place or to help other people move from one place to another. God didn't save us to just help us navigate this life more comfortably or to wish we could live on a well-watered plane or be frustrated by infertility because at that moment, Abram wasn't having kids and he wanted them. It wasn't happening. And God's making these promises about his descendants and he's like, what descendants? God has an inheritance for you, Christian. And it's through Christ. It's received and entered into by faith in him and by obedience to him. And in him, we find rest for our souls. And so we are to walk with him to bring glory to his name. He is the good life. Genesis 13, 18. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Abram was obedient to God's command. He went where God told him to. He walked through the land. He settled by some terebinth trees in the plain, and the root word that Mamre hails from, it means to feed on the fat of the land, to graze. So he settles down. So he's traveled, he's walked around. It's not the well-watered plain that Lot saw from a distance, but he finds all of his needs met in God right where he is in a place that they didn't see. They didn't see that place. It's a place of shade. There was water. There was grazing for his animals, and it was a place of rest. This is an area where he would buy a cave that would become their family burial ground. There he builds an altar to the Lord. This is the place where David, his descendant, would be crowned king of Judah. And he built this altar before he had a descendant. So he's not building an altar because God made a promise or because God gave him a descendant. He did it because he called on the name of the Lord who is good. I looked into the times people built altars in the Bible. I was like, you know, built an altar. It's like, it only happened in the Old Testament. And it would be inappropriate for God-fearing people to build altars to the Lord today or in the New Testament because Jesus has once for all offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, to atone. Instead of offering a, a and, and there's, no, there's no way to fulfill that because there's no temple, there's no sanctified priests, Instead of offering an animal on the altar, 
Under the new covenant, Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It says, brethren. We are brethren. We have been adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ, who is our life. And we're called to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Jesus has been offered once for all for us. And he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And on this day, it's very fitting that we would be remembering the work of Christ in being crucified, in rising from the dead. Uh, We were once estranged from God by our sin. We were cut off from the commonwealth of the kingdom of God because of our sin and folly. And we bring brought near to God through the blood of Jesus that has purged us of our sins. We've been forgiven. We've been born again through the Holy Spirit, through faith in Christ. And we eat of the bread that symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us. And we drink of the cup, which represents the new covenant in his blood. I think about eating and drinking our bodies. We need to eat and drink to live And our receiving of communion, it shows by faith, we will live eternally because of what Jesus has done. So we're doing outwardly what has happened on the inside, that we have been born again. We have received by faith the work Jesus did. That is, we deserve what he received, the judgment of God. And we have also received the forgiveness and the new life through him. So let's return to faith in Jesus today. Let's be looking to him. Let's be wiser from our wanderings because we're learning to trust and obey God rather than taking for ourselves. We will not be striving spiritually unfruitful or barren when we seek, follow, and trust Jesus who gives us life, who is our life. I'd like to invite the worship team forward, please. Uh, to lead us in a song. And while they're leading us, please come forward and take of the cup and the bread and I'll lead us in a prayer together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your wisdom, for your word, that you have sent Jesus to be the savior of the world, that you've given us new life, forgiveness through him. Thank you for atoning for our sins by his shed blood, that once for all he he died for the sins of the world, that we could be redeemed and reconciled to God and be adopted into your family as children. And thank you for the promises you made to Abram, that you were faithful to him, that you made him uh, prosper in the land, and you would change his name to Abraham. Thank you, Lord, that you have changed us through faith in Jesus Christ, that we have been born again and we have been made new and we have this good life now to be lived to please and honor you as living sacrifices offered for your glory. And I thank you, Lord, for your patience with us and your goodness toward us and your faithfulness to keep your word. And Lord, I pray if there is strife in our hearts toward others, if there is contention between us and you, that you would bring us to a place of humility and surrender and repentance, that we would be like the prodigal who came back not as an entitled son, but as a humbled servant. And thank you, Lord, that you will receive all who come to you, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been.
We can always find you. We can always come back to you. And I pray we would abide in you forever. That our feet would not wander. That our eyes would not be lifted up to take things for ourselves. But to trust you completely. To follow you absolutely because you are our God and our Lord who gives life now and forever. And so Lord, I pray as we uh, enter into this time of remembering that we would not forget your works. We would not go from this place and, and just forget. Help us to remember and help us to proclaim and praise your holy name now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.